Hello and welcome to the That's Afterlife podcast with DMS Ranson and Adrian Mills. Hello, thank you so much for joining us. Hello, AD. How are you? I'm good, Esther. Always a pleasure to speak with you. How's your week been? Well, actually, interestingly, there's been a piece in the news about the number of scams there are, um, taking advantage of COVID and so on. I had two attempts in my internet, in my emails. One was purporting to be from Royal Mail and saying that they tried to deliver a parcel and if I clicked on this link, then I would be able to know how much, arrange another delivery, you know, et cetera. Um, I have. I was just about to say to you, funny enough, I've had about three or four internet little stings of late from the HMRC saying, uh, if you do not pay this money, we will come and arrest you. There will be a warrant out for your arrest. Press one. Don't do it. But interesting enough, I did click on one link and I hate to say it, but if anything happens during the, our chat, you'll know that I've probably got some virus or bug that's uh, invaded the internet because uh, my computer has been very strange over the last few days. And this is the trouble. I think I'm relatively savvy with this sort of thing but you know my mom who's nearly 90 she said she's sick to death of people phoning her up and asking her for passcodes and numbers and passwords for this and that and she got to the point now where she just swears at them puts the phone down well i think all of us are, are, are probably now educated never to give any kind of detail over the phone be it passcode or anything else but the other thing i got through my internet was I'm a subscriber to Netflix, and this was a really genuine-looking reminder that my membership is up for renewal, and all I've got to do is click on this link. But I do think it's a shame, really, that we haven't found ways of sorting this out. If only that's life were on the air right now. Oh, we will be doing this. The one that I think you've got to be very careful of. Oh, I think you've got a four number passcode. Could you give me the first and third letters? And you go, oh, yes, it's one and six. And then they go, oh, I'm sorry, but um, I missed that. Could, could you give me the second and fourth? And you just then give the second and fourth. They've got, then they've got all of them. Oh, hello. Uh, sorry, Aidy. My neighbour's just ringing me. Hi, Aidy, David. Oh, I think I'm OK for eggs. You are kind, David. Thanks so much. And thanks for the compost. Very kind. Okay, bye. Excuse me. Excuse me. We're, we're, we're talking. We're talking serious technology, uh, criminal behaviour, and you're talking eggs and compost. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we've had uh, lots of listeners sending us um, favourite life hacks, which we've asked for in the program. We'd love to hear from you. Whatever subject you care to share, we're really keen to put some of uh, our clips, your clips, uh, on our website of talented pets and people. All you have to do is send uh, your email to hello at that'safterlife.com. That's hello at that'safterlife.com. And uh, this one, I don't know why, but brings a smile to my face. Kevin from Bath says, do you know you can hang a picture using toothpaste? What? Yeah, exactly. Well, I would have thought you've had plenty of toothpaste in your house over the years. Can't believe you haven't got this one, Esther. Um, add toothpaste where the nail should go on the back of the picture frame, put it in position on the wall, and the toothpaste will mark perfectly where you should put the nails. When you're done, you simply wipe it off. Clever. Brilliant. It is good, isn't it? I like that. Alternatively, ask a man. <laughs> 
Okay, let, let me move on. Um, a question here from Barry he says, uh, Dear Esther and Adrian, I find it really strange watching programmes without the audience participating. It feels like something is missing. How important do you think a studio audience is? In That's Life, it was really important, wasn't it? Uh, we used them a lot. And um, although uh, we used to warm up with the same joke a million times, but um, it was very important that they responded naturally because that was the way we could tell whether a joke was working or in serious items, you could actually hear them listening. Mm. Things have changed and I will not go to studio shows now because the warm-up, man it's usually a man forces the audience to stand up and cheer wave banners they don't want you to be natural anymore they dragoon you they orchestrate you i mean these ridiculous noise you know some of the quiz shows when someone announces what the prize money is and the whole audience goes woo that's because they've yep. been rehearsed a million times and if they don't get it right they have to retake it it's just I don't like it. And also, one of the most popular shows on television, you have to go there at four in the afternoon and they don't let you out until 11 o'clock at night. And you are lucky to get a packet of hula hoops and a carton of orange juice. So beware if you decide that your favourite show is a studio audience when, you know, we're allowed to join them and you think you'll write in for tickets. Beware. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, we used to use the audience. From a, for a timing point of view, isn't it? Like a comedy show, you know, you, you're re relying on the laughter from the audience so that you're pitching it correctly. Otherwise, you can sometimes just railroad through things. Well, absolutely. And, and I needed them because I'd written the show and so I knew all the material. But in order to keep it fresh, I had to have an audience of people who were hearing it for the first time. Yes. Because their response would actually make me aware of, you know, the highs and lows, the funny bits, the sad bits and so on. No, our studio audience was very, very important to us. Uh, actually, I hate to say this, but it says my internet connection is breaking up. Um, AD? Oh, he's gone. Joanna Lumley? Oh, look, look, look. Look, look, look. Oh, how lovely to see you. Oh, honey, how gorgeous to see you. Now, look, I have some bad news for you. Oh, damn. Adrian Mills, who is my colleague on this and was so looking forward to meeting you, has fallen off the internet. So he's absolutely right now in his car, parking somewhere in Wimbledon, where he lives, in order to try and borrow someone else's internet and join us, because otherwise he will be brokenhearted. <laughs> now, look here. This woman, Lumley, who goes to all these off the beaten track places, you know, where, you know, lucky to find a loo, let alone running water. Does she take a hairdresser in her suitcase? Because you always look bandbox. You look as if you're doing a Vogue, you know, fashion shoot. How do you do that? The truth is, remember, Esther, I started my life as a model and we had to do our own hair and makeup. We had to do it all ourselves. And it was actually a, a very, very great training. It taught me about lights, but it taught me how in the dark, practically, you can sketch some sort of face onto what remains of your own. And if you're camping in a tent in the Nubian desert, you haven't got an iron. Um, and in fact, up all night with the black water runs anyway, and nowhere to go and only men around you. I mean, some of the things are grim. 
but on the whole, you get quite hardy and the camera can forgive. It doesn't show sweat. In one instalment, I saw this leaf you pulled out of, you know, raw sewage floating past you and you ate it. I, when I went to India, I suffered for six weeks. It's ghastly. Well, you know what it's like. You're just doubled over and you can't go anywhere and you can't really enjoy things. But I had to get out and, and speak to the camera and walk about and look cheerful. <laughs> Good cure. Dr. Theatre. And you've got all those men around you and no loo. Usually I, I'm sensible enough to wear something, whether it's even just a big, had to take a big cloth with your shawl or a long coat or something like that. And you can, you can just kind of duck down facing away from them. And people are very polite and you kind of go slightly off the beaten track. Because if you're in a desert, there is nowhere to hide. <laughs> <laughs> were you brought up to be hardy? I mean, you were born in India, is that right? I was, but I didn't remember it. For the first time I didn't remember India because I left before I was a year old. Remember, we were with an, I was with an army family. And so we weren't actually living in the wild. We went to faraway places, but they were they were in modernized. You know, there were there was Hong Kong and Malaya, Kuala Lumpur, and places like that. So they were completely sort of you know they had laboratories. The toughest thing that happened to you was to be sent to boarding school very young. I know I was eight. My sister was two years older. She was with me. It was a small school, and it was fairly wretched because. Only for a little bit. I'm quite good. I get, I bounce back. But my sister was quite homesick. But I realised we were homesick for the Far East as much as anything else. We were in a little Kentish, uh, tiny school. There were only 11 boarders there. And England was so cold compared with the Far East and so different. That's all just different. Food was tasteless and, I don't know, everything was hard and strange. And the first books I read about were was was uh, I think it was called the carved cartoon and it was about the plague <laughs> God. people saying bring out your dead and I was only eight and we were frozen in bed at night and I could remember lying there under a little measly blanket cold as hell thinking I'd got lumps under my arms of the bubonic plague it uh, so that was grim apart from the bit of initial heartbreak it sounds terrible this doesn't it you learn how to get over things and you learn how to endure all sorts of unpleasantnesses knowing they will come to an end I remember I had a neighbour once who had just sent her small boy aged seven to boarding school and she popped in to borrow a cup of sugar or something and she said, oh Esther, it's so wonderful the school Benji's at because the headmaster lets him send such suicidal letters home. Well, I did this because I sent Jamie to boarding school. That was because I was a single parent and I just got the Avengers and there was no way I could do that those filming days but I made a pact with him I said look if you hate it just write to me and say I hate it and I'll come and sweep you away it doesn't matter a jot anyway he wrote me letters but I discovered much later that the headmaster had taken all the letters because boys had to give their letters to the headmaster before they were sealed up and posted and uh he was made to rewrite the ones which said please take me away and so he he, he never could get the message through to me and so I never knew and I could never take him away and that's one of the biggest pains still in my heart and occasionally when I bring it up, he says, it doesn't matter. And I go, it hurts me more than I can tell you. Because I would have just rushed down there and said, goodbye, I'm taking my boy away, you know. I did a deal with my children. I said, if ever you go away from home, you're staying with a friend or wherever it is. If you say to me, I will say to you, is your nose a bit itchy? And if you say yes, I'll come and get you. Did they say? Once. Did you go and get them? I did. Now, you were and still are 
among the most beautiful women of your generation. Don't contradict <laughs> me. And I was just analyzing this because I must tell you, Joanna Lumley, and this will not be a shock to you, that you are the only person my late husband Desmond fancied more than he fancied me. Duffy. And I think this is true of a lot of men. I think you are the secret dream goddess fantasy of so many men. Oh, honey, but, but Desmond was an exceptionally adorable and amazing man. And I suspect women, I mean, it must have been quite difficult holding onto his arm because there'd be so many bodies of women thrown at his feet, I would have thought. <laughs> we clamber over them anyway. He was such a darling. It was entirely due to him that I have one of my honorary BAFTA masks. But I was terribly proud and I know it was Des who did that. I know it was. Well, he fancied you. I'm not saying that's why he did that. Look, we, we live in an age of me too, don't we? So you being this gorgeous creature um, with oozing charm and sex appeal and all those things, did you ever suffer from the casting couch and the you know sexual harassment and all those other things that was going on? I can remember on a casting list of, of people for a film to be made called Shaft, which eventually became a big hit. And one of the great casting agents, Maud Spector, had put our names down. This was, oh, it's a lovely part, off we go. And we were given two pages to look at before we went in to do the audition with the producers and the director. And I looked at it and it was so foul and vulgar. And Maud said, next, and in I went. And they said, off you go. And I, I can remember saying, I can't do this. I can't read this. I'm so sorry. I'm going to give it back to you. They were furious. She followed me out of the room and said, what do you call yourself, an actress? But it wasn't. It was filthy, 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 squalid kind of sex addict kind of sex worker stuff. And I thought, this is no part of the film. This is just more stuff which was very, very prevalent at the time, which is that girls had to be have their tops off at some stage. You know, Men's bottoms are always funny because all bottoms look the same. But you never saw the front of a man, but you always saw women without their tops on, including Glenda Jackson, Vanessa Redgrave, Julie Christie, you know, Jacqueline Bissett, or everybody at the time had to take that. We all had to take our tops off. It was part of the sort of titillation of the time. Did you ever take your top off? I can't remember seeing your top. Yes. Um, I was in a film called The Breaking of Bumbo. But in that, I can remember with the beautiful Richard Warwick, an actor who I adored, who's dead now. We had to we had to do one of these arch love scenes where we walk towards each other, both naked as the day we were born. And guess what? You saw Richard's back and bottom, but you saw my front. <laughs> that was part of the course. I hated, I always hated nude scenes. I've never been brave. I've never longed to strip off and run into the sea in, in my skinny dipping. I never did that. I never did it. Quite a prude. Now I... Oh I my Lord. Paul Adrian Mills, he's there with his hair standing on him. We've, we've done the exciting salacious bit, Adrian. Uh, you, you've gone and talked sex without me, haven't you? I just know it. Do you know, never in my life have I wanted to hear a more calming voice than Joanna Lumley's than I have in the last half an hour. I am so stressed, it is not true. Oh, don't be stressed. You're back now. Oh, darling, how are you? I'm so well, thank you very, very much. Oh, how lovely to see you. I am so sorry. I can only profusely apologise for being uh, late to join you and Esther. We're blaming the internet. 
So while you're catching your breath, Mr. Mills, let me just continue because we were just talking about the Avengers and the British of Bumbo. And, and was it exciting being a Bond girl? What was that like? Oh, I'd done a film called Some Girls Do in which I played a tiny part before the credits. And then the second film I was up for and romped home with was a part in a James Bond film on Her Majesty's Secret Service. It was given to me by Harry Saltzman himself. He just said, you've got the part. And, I went, oh! and that was it. And I was a Bond girl. And we spent two months up in the Bernese Oberland. And there were 12 of us being trained to be angels of death by Blofeld. It was a ravishing job. I simply adored it. Did you meet James Bond? George Lazenby? Yes. Oh, indeed I did. I've met every single Bond there was, starting with Sean and then I think George was the second, then it was Roger. Then I suspect, it's okay, Adrian, it was for me anyway. Um, <laughs> then I Hang on, Joanna's agent, one second. <laughs> this is the problem. I've raced from my home to come to the office to do this, and now all the phones are kicking off. It's just, <laughs> oh, I feel, I feel like I'm in an episode of Ab Fab. <laughs> I was I'm banging on a bit. I was only banging on. I did a documentary on Ian Fleming, and in that I had to read out what he wrote, how he described James Bond. And uh, I've got to say that none of the Bonds were anything like that. You couldn't really tell if he was nice or nasty. He was clearly attractive, he was clearly quite fit, but funnily enough in a room, you wouldn't go, oh, my Lord, because he was just an able man. He had a, quite a cruel face. And I didn't, I mean, I suppose you could say that about Sean. Roger Moore had a beautiful darling face. George Lazenby didn't look cruel. Um, Tim Dalton, I suppose, could. Pierce Brosnan, I think, they, didn't they say he looked as though he owned his own dinner jacket? <laughs> Which is a very funny and rather snobbish way of sort of, <clears throat> I don't know. I wonder if that man ever exists and whether it isn't almost better kept as a fantasy and an ever-changing face on screen. And maybe, maybe the, his colour will change, maybe his age will change. I think he has to be in his 30s to have achieved what he's what and who he is, late 30s maybe. And he has to be a man? I, I think if it isn't, um, I think that, that the story, we must bother to write a new story. I don't think we get Joanna Bond, although I would have loved it. <laughs> <laughs> now we come to Ab Fab. I went to a recording of Ab Fab. You were at the peak of entertainment, but I wondered whether it's quite tense when you're having to live up to such an amazing reputation. Well, I think for Jennifer, of course, I mean, all of us were just the actresses and you're desperate to get your part right, get the gags right, say the lines right, and hit the bullseye. Jennifer, who not only had to do that as an actress, but had written it. So if anybody didn't like it, that was going to be her fault. <sighs> and so it, the expectation was double trebled on her shoulders. It was very nervous, you know, because we'd rehearsed during the week and quite often Jennifer was late with writing the script. So we were all fairly tense. The audience was all important. And I think we found that when we made the film of Ab Fab the movie, without an audience and not doing it, telling a story in sequence to an audience who are largely adoring and predestined to adore it. So suddenly when you're working without anything, you don't have that sounding board to come back off. So that was much harder work. When you were recruited to play Patsy in Ab Fab, you were, the part was described to you as being as unlike Joanna Lumley as it could possibly be. Is that true? No, 
there was no, it wasn't described to me at all. I was sent the script and the script just had a friend of Adina's and I found it absolutely agony because I couldn't think with this, with this demeanor, my voice and how I look and how I am, the real me, I didn't know who to jump into to begin with. I couldn't think. And then I thought all I've got to do is to make Jennifer laugh. All I've got to do is to make Jennifer laugh. And with her collusion, we, Patsy became a grotesque. And so she'd had all her insides taken out because they'd all damaged or had rotted away. I think she had quite a lot of her bottom taken away too. So she walked slightly hunched because her middle bits had gone. <laughs> and she hadn't eaten since 1974. And so she choked when she ate a crisp, you know, I mean, it was, she was a cartoon character. And as soon as I knew that, because by nature and from being very, very early on, a clown, I'm not an actress, I'm a clown, I'm an entertainer. Then I could see the Patsy and she rose like a phoenix. She, ar she arrived with me almost fully formed. The second, and I'm doing this now for you, the second her hair went up, and the second she had a cigarette, <laughs> and the second I knew that, like Elvis, she didn't laugh like that, she just laughed <laughs> like that. The second I could get that, um, I thought, ooh, ooh, this is somebody I love. <laughs> Was she based on anyone you knew? No, no, absolutely not. I mean, because I'd been a model in the 60s, and I'd been around and knew, pop singers and people like that. You know, I'd met them all. Some of the Beatles and the Stones, because I'd sort of known them. Patsy, exaggeratedly, had had affairs with all of them and was found in the cupboards with them. And um, she believed that. She believed she was a top model. She wasn't, she was hopeless, always stoned. Now, in my day, if there was a joint, somebody would pass it round, you'd all go, ooh, and pass it on. I mean, that was, a, that was about the level of my drug taking. But Patsy just lived off it. And also she injected herself with Botox virtually every morning. And therefore, unbelievably paradise to play. Was it a, a surprise to you all as to how successful, how quickly it became cult following? And that must have put immense pressure on all of you as performers. I think we thought that maybe even up in, in Carlisle, they wouldn't really get the importance of Harvey Nicks to these people. And, the, and people uh, maybe, I don't know, we never thought of it, even leaving Britain, we never thought of that. We just sort of thought some people down south might like it. That's kind of, I think, what the aim was. Some people might laugh at this. And this is why it works. It was brilliantly written and it was very, very funny. And comedy does travel. We love comedy. It can, it can. But the other thing about it, it had, of course, all that, all that stuff about Harvey Nicks and Bolly and all those other things. But it was actually about relationships. Yes. It was about that mother-daughter relationship. It was about the, the two women who are friends relationship. It was wonderful. June Whitfield, the, the actual episode, yeah. I was there for the recording. She was doing the washing up and she turned around with female condoms on her hands. And she said, these washing up gloves are letting the water in. And she got the laugh of the night. Because she was impeccable that she could, she had, in her comedy life, she was one of the greatest comedians. All comedians wanted to work with her because they knew she, she absolutely got it. She shaved everything. There was no extra stuff like that. She turned around with those femidons on and she knew how to present them. She knew how the story would be that they had no fingers or whatever the thing was. And that cl the clarity of not m m mussing around with the words, just getting the words, she was spot on spot on and she would always she drove jennifer mad she shuffle up to her in rehearsal and say 
Now, I do think I could, I could just lose this. I didn't think we need that. I didn't think we need that. And she'd pare her part down and down and down until it just hit like a little silver arrow each time. She was magic. I know, I know. I worked with her she, exactly as you say. It's just suddenly dawned on me, literally a week ago, I put the TV on late at night and I went, I didn't even know you were in this, Joanna, and I can only apologise, Wolf of Wall Street with uh, DiCaprio. Thank you. What was that like? I've got to tell you the story. They have this great courtesy of printing your name in grey across every page of the script. And I read it in half and I went, oh, God, my God, they can't film this, but it's Martin Scorsese, it's Leo DiCaprio. Then I get to see and I go, oh my God, it's just me and Leo in a two-hander. This looks like a lovely little scene. Oh my God, he kisses her. Oh my God, this is love. Thank you so much. I will actually pay you to be in this film. So it was just bliss. I just loved it. And I was slightly scared because I've admired DiCaprio ever since I first saw him as a, as a teenager in films. I think he's a consummate actor. And quite often his work hasn't been recognized because he's simply too beautiful and he's very able and he never does the same work twice. He's utterly brilliant. And I thought, oh, he's been in it for so long. He's gonna be a bit of a Hollywood brat, maybe. He was the most charming, modest, self-effacing, humorous, down-to-earth, connected, actorly person you could hope to meet. And instead of shooting in Hyde Park where we were supposed to shoot, Mr. Scorsese doesn't like to travel. So we shot it in Brooklyn. <laughs> They put, they put people in sort of policemen's uniforms and a kind of nanny with a pram, with a kind of silver cross pram and a Scotty dog and went along in the background. And that was to look like Hyde Park. And it fooled everybody. And when DiCaprio's Jordan comes to Aunt Emma's door and knocks on the door, they, he was in front of a green screen in Brooklyn. And uh, behind him, they just put the brilliance of, of a London street behind. Filming is, is magic. It is a magical thing. But I loved that and I thought the film was sensational. He should have got an Oscar for that. They waited till he was a big old bear man with lots of beard all over him and really suffering because Oscars like to give it to people who've suffered, who've really cared, suffered, or are playing suffering or caring people. They can't see the brilliance of light comedy. Now look here, as a campaigner, you are fantastically successful on behalf of Gurkhas. You like picking up causes. It's always terrifying because you can always fail. And with the Gurkha justice campaign, we went, you know, you take a step forward and three steps back and then two steps forward. And then you'd grab that kind of rocky outcrop to drag yourself up the mountain a little bit higher. I never knew that the Gurkha soldiers who'd worked so faithfully for our country for 200 years, that they would be deported like criminals on their last day of their tour of duty. We felt that was wickedly unfair. And so we reversed it, that's all. But it was a big uphill struggle. Now, actually, that isn't the cause that we thought you wanted to talk about. What we thought you were going to tell us you cared most about. is make do and mend. Why? Why make do and mend? Make do and mend. It's all to do with not throwing things in landfill, our eyes forever on climate change, the damage of the planet, eco-warriors. It's actually looking out into the far horizon and realizing that although the pandemic has made us focus entirely on our own human frailty, we've taken our eye off the fact that we're spinning at a greater speed on a rolling ball towards a possible pit of hell, unless we stop it, and we can stop it. But we've got to make the most massive efforts, which we can make, because the, the, the vigor and energy means that you can stop on the brink of the precipice, like the roadrunner, you can stop. And that's what we've got to do. And that's why I love Make Do and Mend.
You reuse cling film. I reuse cling film. I reuse um, tin foil. I, I save up and take back to the dry cleaners, the metal coat hangers they bring our clothes on. I save up the elastic bands that come with our mail or, or are dropped on the pavements and I give them back to the post office, who, as you can imagine, are thrilled. <laughs> I turn off lights like a, like a maniac. I darn, redarn, redarn, sew on buttons, sew up seams. Now, a lot of this came from the early days, which we all were poorer in our early days. But as a model, I shared with three other girls, a fourth floor flat in Earl's Court. I was the only one who was a model. And not to wake them up in the morning, I would do my makeup by candlelight. But we were quite poor. So if our tights had ladders, we would sew them up. And to take off my false eyelashes every night, I would rinse them in my palm with a little soap and then roll them to dry round a pencil with a paper hanky. And in the morning they were curled and then I'd glue them on again very, very carefully. So I think we came from a thriftier age, Esther. A phrase was a, a, attached to yourself saying that half of us suffer from green guilt. It absolutely is, because people, I think now, particularly as we know, we all adore David Attenborough. We simply love him. Some people actually think he is God. I hugely admire little Greta Thunberg um, for doing something by going through great hardship herself, sailing across the North Sea, no fun, to try to bring the attention of the world to the fact that we are teetering on, a, on an abyss here and we've got to do something about it. It shocks me where I live in South London, how many people go out with their trolleys filled with two litre bottles of water. We live in a country where water is absolutely clean and comes from the tap. So please don't buy bottled water. I hate litter. I hate litter with such a passion. I hate waste. I want to be a rag and bone man. Look, let's be blunt about it. I want a horse and a cart and a bell. And I want to go, not saying bring out your dead, which is sad and horrifying from those early days of learning about the plague. I'd say, bring out your stuff. And I'd be able to do my voice. I go, hello everybody, it's Joanna here. Bring out your stuff. And they'd all come down and I would, guess what? I'd pay them for it. I've discovered that if you give people money, they'll do anything. So if I gave them money for their plastic, they'd bring it down to me. Quite true. What a joy to talk to you, John, it really is. Um, the programme obviously is called That's Afterlife. Um, we all wish to know what the afterlife's going to be like. None of us do know. And once we've decided what it's like, what are you going to take with you, Joanne? I'm all for people who make up their own things. They can be angels with harps or nothing at all. Or I'm, I don't mind what people make up. Whatever makes you feel easy about going into the taking the next big step. I happen to believe in the Egyptians. I've seen this in pictures all around the tombs. They, they, they get given a, a sniff of the unk, that lovely little sign with the loop and the crisscross. That sniffs you back to life and you get up again at the other side. But what I want to take through the afterlife this time is something I saw in Cairo, in the Egypt Musician in, in, in Museum in Cairo. It stopped my heart. It was in the Tutankhamun collection of things that, he, that were taken from his grave. It is his funerary bed. It's utterly beautiful. It's open, slightly curved on four legs. The legs are topped by the heads of little, it's the goddess Sekhmet. And so in the afterlife, the second, I could hardly wait to sniff the unk, if that isn't so. <laughs> completely <laughs> terrible. <laughs> Whisk through. And there I would be on my funerary daybed with the little goddess heads and the great sun shining down. Okay, so if it's a double bed. My husband who's younger than me, might not have died by then. It would have to be 
I'm afraid it is Elvis. Elvis, he didn't know it, but he obviously was waiting for me. I've talked to, I talked to Priscilla about this. I said, do you know that if he had me, <laughs> your life would be very different. <laughs> it would be Elvis. So if you hadn't married your lovely husband, you would have married Elvis? I mean, the world has been in love with Elvis forever and ever and ever. And I'd obviously, when I got there, I'd have to t turf the Duchess of Devonshire off my daybed because she adored him too. And she, I think she bought his slippers. I mean, really, you know, there's going to be a lot of competition for Elvis. If I wasn't married to Stevie, Esther, I'm not sure that I would be married, you know? I think the thing is, is that marriage is staggeringly difficult to accomplish. Actually, I can't remember who said it to me. I don't think it was my mother. It might have been. She was a V wise woman. She said, don't marry somebody who you think you could be married to and you love them very much. Marry somebody who you literally can't live without. Well, I'll tell you this. My late husband is up there in the afterlife. Well, who's going to get there first, Est? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? That is very interesting because if you happen to precede me, which please God you won't because you're miles younger than me and the world needs you with your various campaigns and talents and all the things, adventures. But if you happen to be up there before me, I think he would elbow Elvis aside <laughs> and be next to you on that golden daybed. And to be honest with you, I, I really don't resent it. I never resented the fact that he had the photograph of you two together. <laughs> I never minded. I absolutely, I think it showed his excellent taste. I do love you. <laughs> well, that has been absolutely wonderful. We're going to love you and leave you. I love and love and love and leave you. Bless you, Esther. I love you, love you, love you. Bye. I love you all, my treasures. Well, the wonderful Joanna Lumley. Adi, I'm so sorry you missed... So much of that interview because um, there, were, there were so many intimate details she shared with me. It was just girls together. Oh, get out of it, Esther. Don't say this to me. And now you tell me all that salacious gossip I've missed. Well, you'll just have to listen, won't you? I don't know. Life, the afterlife. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Esther, oh, well, I'm, I'm distraught on that. Uh, John from Blackpool wanted to know, if you were to uh, go travelling, and obviously you did with That's Life, where was the most exotic place you ever went? I didn't go anywhere exotic when we were working on That's Life, though I did once make a film about Mormons in America. Right. And we found a polygamous Mormon who had five wives. And the weekend off. Well, he had a keep fit den and he had pictures <laughs> of his wedding photographs next to every bedroom because each one had its own double bed with a picture of the, the marriage ceremony. But you know what? I left at the speed of light. But you want to know why I left at the speed of light? You were going to be wife number six? That's what wife number one said to me. I was meeting all the wives and wife number <laughs> one whose name was Sister Susie, said, Esther, have you ever wondered why at the age of 29 you have never married? Have you ever considered what God might have in mind for you? And I oh. looked at her and I realized that she had recruited all the other wives. And I went to our producer and I said, I'm, <clears throat> I'm sorry, we have to leave now. And we left. That was the most exotic experience I have ever had filming for the BBC. And all our lives would have been immensely different 
Had you have stayed there? You said longingly, <laughs> wistfully. How dare you? <laughs> On that note, and before my uh, internet breaks up again, that is sadly the end of our podcast. And if you'd like to join us again, please do subscribe to That's Afterlife podcast found on any of your favourite streaming platforms, or you can find us on our website, that'safterlife.com. And please remember, we'll be reading your letters and emails each episode, so uh, make sure you send your views to hello at that'safterlife.com. That's hello at that'safterlife.com. And even if Adrian's internet doesn't hold up, I promise you we'll have another wonderful guest next week. So it's goodbye from him. Can you hear me, Esther? And it's goodbye from me. Bye now. That's Afterlife is a Captive Minds production and is series produced by Ross Haley. The creator and executive producer is Liz Mills. (laughs) 